Well, you'd open up your Bibles. We're going to begin the year as we start our journey through 2020 uh, with the most important thing we can be doing, and that's just studying God's Word. Amen? If you turn to Isaiah 4, a very short chapter. You're probably looking at it going six verses. That's a whole chapter. Uh, It is indeed a whole chapter. And one of the reasons that this particular chapter is so short as it contains one of the most powerful messianic passages that there is found in the Old Testament with regard to whom the Jewish people were looking for as far as their Messiah. And so this thought, this concept, one of the reasons that uh, I believe that the only correct view one ought to have is that there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, is that reign has a purpose. It is to show national Israel the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There's going to come a point in time that we've already looked at that we call uh, the day of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation of days, seven years where the Antichrist is going to rise up. He's going to start a kingdom that kingdom is going to encompass the entire earth it'll have three main facets those main facets are a one world government a one world monetary system and a one world religion and for the first three and a half years of that period of time that is still yet future to us tonight it's going to primarily be a peace treaty that's made with israel israel is going to finally take its place as far as the Jewish people are concerned in the world in in a leadership role. Many of you, if you're tracking the things that are going on in Israel, Israel uh, just announced today that they have signed a treaty and and, an agreement with Greece, uh, Italy, and a couple of other countries uh, to sell natural gas. So they became energy independent basically today. But Israel is far from dependent or far from independent uh, of the drama that surrounds their country. And until the Lord finally delivers them in the very last days, that area of the world is going to be tumultuous and troublesome. And that's the story that Isaiah has for us. And as the history of Israel unfolds, we have a couple of days that people often confuse Uh, And those two days are described here in the book of Isaiah. One of them is in our passage in that day, but it should not be confused with in the day of the Lord. Those things are not the same. The day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, is the pouring out of God's wrath. In that day refers to a time when Israel is actually going to be at peace when they are going to receive the fullness of the kingdom. And we'll see that in our passage tonight. And so from the very earliest times, Jewish rabbis looked at the writings of the book of Isaiah. Uh, When you travel to Israel, there is actually a shrine to the book. It's called the shrine of the book. And that book is the book of Isaiah. It is the the contents of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's one of the very few completely intact scrolls in all of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most of them 
are partial or several copies. We have copies of every single book of the Bible except for the book of Ruth in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but there were uh, three full copies of the book of Isaiah. And so there in the shrine of the book, this incredible museum uh, to antiquity and to the writings of the prophets is this book which we are studying. The Jewish rabbis looked at that book and from very earliest, the very earliest times, the rabbi said, surely this passage must be speaking of Messiah. And so let's pray, and we'll take these six verses tonight in the study I've entitled, The Branch of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, and God, as we read it and study Lord, as we enjoy time at your feet to learn of you, to realize that you have been telling your people, Israel, about the coming one for thousands of years. And we know that you're going to make one day uh, Jesus visible to them. Lord, as you return, as you come back that second time, they will look on you whom they have pierced and mourn you. Uh, And Lord, they will come to faith just exactly as the Apostle Paul said. And so we pray that as we study, uh, your voice would be audible to your people. Encourage us with your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Isaiah 4. And in that day, notice what is said next. Women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat of our own food and wear our own apparel, Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. Now, it is absolutely essential to look at this. It had a partial fulfillment during Isaiah's time because the city of Jerusalem was besieged. The men were normally those whom they killed. The women were taken captive, usually uh, brought into the society. For instance, the Assyrians did this and created the Samaritan population. The Babylonians did this. They killed off all the men. The women weren't going to fight against them. or The the women weren't going to fight against them. The men would, so they killed off the men. And so there was a partial fulfillment of this, or a fulfillment in time, during Isaiah's time, and there has been throughout history. But there is a time coming, that time of Jacob's trouble, that time of tribulation, where this is going to be even more prevalent. And from a Jewish perspective, because a woman not having children would have been a shame both to her and to her family, uh, here, here comes this picture that is very, very Jewish. We, we don't want to be a reproach. And so we need a name. We need to be part of a family. And so in that day, again mentioning the millennial reign of Christ, the branch of the Lord shall be glorious and shall be beautiful and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing. And as you look at these words, notice what's being used because there are all the extremes of those particular things. Beautiful, glorious, excellent, appealing. There is nothing in our world that's beautiful and glorious and excellent and appealing with regard to the spiritual condition of this planet. There are individuals who are walking in the Spirit, and there are churches who are largely walking in the Spirit. But this is speaking of a condition of the earth. It's talking about the the entirety of the planet, if you will. 
Because in that day, it's referring to a time when the king reigns. And that's going to become very easily discernible here in a moment. But the fruit of the earth will be excellent and appealing. For those of Israel who have escaped, escaped what? Escaped the day of the Lord. Escaped the time of Jacob's trouble. Those that have come to faith, actually been saved during those very last days. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, and Zion is a very specific name, and it refers to really Jerusalem itself, but also the larger Jerusalem area. And in fact, the hill that makes up Jerusalem is called Mount Zion. And so from the very edge of the Hinnom Valley to the south, to the north where it almost abuts and adjoins Mount Scopus, the whole of that mountain called the Mountain of the Lord, the place that Isaac was going to be offered up by Abraham, uh, the place upon which uh, the Temple Mount used to stand. The whole city was referred to as Zion. It was also referred to as David's city. And so as you, you look at this region, it's referring to, a, from a very Jewish perspective, the city of Jerusalem and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy and so it clarifies the whole of the statement of those who were left in Zion and if you remember originally when when Israel became a nation in 1948 the group of people that resettled were called Zionists they, they were people who came to reestablish Zion so Theodor Herzl as he launches this endeavor to bring Israel back into the land. Um, that was called a, the Zionist movement. And so there was always an intent that the Jewish people understood that their holy city was Zion. That's where they were supposed to dwell. That was where they were supposed to live. It's one of the great problems in our world today as the Israelites, the Jewish people, established themselves in their own land, which God gave to them as a perpetual inheritance. Their capital always has been, and to this day from God's perspective, is Jerusalem. It's not a, not a thing that God struggles with. God's not going, well, you know, I don't think politically we should allow the Israel and the Jewish people to actually call Jerusalem their capital. No, God gave it to them. And so Jerusalem, Zion, is Israel's capital. Not because man says so, but because God said so. And so in that day, they will inhabit it. Finally, as the Lord does exactly what he has always said he was going to do. And those who remain there will be called holy. One of the tremendous difficulties of traveling to Israel today is recognizing that Israel is not what God intends it to be at this moment in time. It is one of the most contested and divided places on the planet now, when you travel there, one of the things that always amazes people when they travel for the first time is the, the military presence, which is virtually everywhere. There's almost nowhere in Jerusalem that you can go that you aren't going to see regular Israeli police and also IDF soldiers, both male and female. You're going to see armored vehicles. You're going to see uh, anti-tank barricades. You're going to see everything in the city of Jerusalem 
because part of it is inhabited by the Jewish people, part, part of it is inhabited uh, by Arab peoples from many different nations, uh, part of it is contested. Uh, the area of East Jerusalem uh, is, is what's called in the Palestinian territories, and so even though it abuts directly the Temple Mount itself, part of the Temple Mount is divided into, Temple Mount's divided into four quarters. There's an Armenian quarter, and a Jewish quarter, and an Arab quarter, and a Christian quarter. Even the Temple Mount itself uh, is, is divided right now. The Temple Mount itself is not even controlled by the Jewish people. It's controlled by the Jordanian government, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. The Grand Mufti, actually the Islamic ruler of Jerusalem, is the one who controls access to the Temple Mount. And so as you read this passage... God is saying there's going to come a point in time where Zion is going to be the dwelling place of Israel. I can tell you what would happen today if the Jewish people, and they could decide to do this, by the way, were to decide that they're not going to put up with this anymore and they are going to build the temple on the Temple Mount because they have the military power, the capability to do anything they want but they recognized that it would cause an all-out war in the Middle East. The moment they took the first stone to the Temple Mount, they would be attacked on every side. Jordan would attack them from the east, Lebanon would attack them from the north, Egypt would attack them from the south, and from the ocean, probably all of them would gather together along with the Russian Navy. And so Israel itself has never had possession of Jerusalem in its totality up to this day, as is described in this passage, and yet your Bible says they will. That, my friends, is yet future. Jerusalem will be called holy, and everyone is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. It's giving a picture of people in Jerusalem actually being saved. Nothing could be further from the truth today. And in fact, evangelizing, spreading the Christian faith is technically illegal in Jerusalem. Now, when you're traveling around, if you want to have problems with the police, all you need to do is take out a few tracks and start pestering people with the gospel. Now, we kind of sort of do that anyway, but we have to do it a little bit stealth because it's illegal. There is no temple. The Jewish people even worship to some degree uh, only in synagogues, but there's no temple on the Temple Mount. So there's no holy place, there's no holy of holies. It is not holy. Paul refers to this time that will come directly before this day in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. For as it is written, a deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away the ungodliness of Jacob. The apostle Paul was referring to this passage nearly 700 years later when he wrote, as he's looking at Jerusalem, He's remembering what Isaiah said, and he says, I know when that's going to happen. When Israel finally sees Messiah. 
And verse 4 goes on. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst. Notice how he does it. By the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion. Now, now I want you to understand exactly how contested Zion is right now. Uh, In, I believe it was last month's National Geographic, there was an article about, in essence, the, the warfare over the Temple Mount. So that the Israeli archaeologists, as they're trying to excavate their holy city, have had to go underground. They're actually tunneling under the Temple Mount and parts of it. And as they do that, they're uncovering all kinds of Jewish connection to the Temple Mount, but they're hated for doing it. And the reason they're hated is they're tunneling underneath Arab homes. They're tunneling underneath Arab neighborhoods. They're tunneling underneath Arab cemeteries because what lies beneath them is the history of Israel and the history of the Jewish people. So built on top of the Jewish history is effectively the Ottoman Empire followed by the Mamluk Empire. And so when you go to Jerusalem and you look at the walls that surround the city, they're actually Arab walls from the 1500s. So for the Jewish people, as they look at their city, the only place that they can worship, the only place where the original Temple Mount is actually exposed is what we call the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, the Hakotel. That's the one place in all of Jerusalem where there's any semblance of what was there during the time of Christ when Jesus said, not one stone will be left on top of one another, because when he said that, Solomon's temple still stood. And so for the Jewish people, and what Isaiah is alluding to here, there's going to come a time when the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion, above for assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day and the shining flame of fire by night, For over all the glory there will be a covering. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime. And from the heat for a place of refuge, a shelter from the storm and the rain. The Jewish people have no such thing nor no such place today. And so I say to you, because Jesus himself referred to the temple that was on the Temple Mount being destroyed that this time has to be after when Titus destroyed the temple, which was A.D. 70. And there still is no glory over the temple, over Zion in Jerusalem. It is simply contested today. And so what was Isaiah trying to say to us? What was he saying to the Jewish people uh, as we look at this passage? And I'd remind you as you look back a little bit in your in your biblical understanding and knowledge to Exodus chapter 13. And it's the story of the wilderness wanderings. It's probably familiar to most of you, if not, if not all tonight, that the Jewish people, when they finally were given this directive to construct this temporary meeting place where they would worship God and where God would be with them, that we call the tabernacle, 
notice what it says, that there would be a dwelling place and there would be a tabernacle. God had instructed them in the wilderness to build a tabernacle, a place for him to dwell. And over that was what? A cloud and a pillar of fire. And here Isaiah, much after, uh, almost 500 years after the writing of the of the, what we would call the Pentateuch when it was actually codified and written down. Some 500 years later, he's saying there's going to be a tabernacle and there's going to be a cloud and there's going to be a cleansing and there's going to be a place for, for the Jewish people that will be holy and it still doesn't exist. It hasn't come yet. Now, people try and spiritualize this and say, well, in the heart of every individual person who gives their life to Christ, um, that exists. And to some degree, there is truth in that because we are now saints, which means set apart ones. It actually means holy ones, amen? So individual people are saintly, but it's not speaking of individual people. It's speaking of the whole, the totality of Zion. It's speaking of every last one. In other words, it's giving such a general call to holiness that if you travel there today, you're just simply not going to find it. You're going to find everything but. And you're certainly going to find war and not peace. You're not going to find shelter from the storm. The branch in that day. It says, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful. Who is this branch? What is, what is he? Uh, as we would look at Zechariah's prophecies, and, and I'll give you an opportunity to look at them uh, on your own time as you, as you should be students of the Bible. But Zechariah prophesied of the same one called the branch. In chapter six, Zechariah said, and then speaking of him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man, the man, whose name is the branch. So Zechariah gave us a little further detail about who the branch was. He also would go on to call him the branch of David. Who was Jesus related to? Jehovah's servant. We're going to find out that Isaiah further calls the coming Messiah the servant of the Most High and also Jehovah's servant, the branch. And so it becomes very clear that there's going to be a branch that's going to spring out. And for those of you that had the opportunity, if you have especially fruit trees, they seem to be prone to this. But growing up in North San Diego County and uh, having businesses in Fallbrook, which is the avocado capital of the world, in case you didn't know that, uh, you could take and cut down an avocado tree all the way back to a stump, and you can just simply graft in whatever type of avocado you want to, to be produced on that stump. You can take the stump, and graft in a single cutting. Uh, you may have had a, a, a Haas or an avocado tree and you want to change it to a Fuerte, you can cut it down as long as the stump is good and you can graft in a single branch and whatever the branch is, that's what that tree becomes. And that is the picture here. Because by grace and through faith, we are grafted in. We, we are attached to the life of the branch. The branches of the Father, and because the branch is holy, those that spring forth from the branch are also holy. 
So God's righteousness comes through the branch. And so this picture uh, of this branch who's going to spring forth out of seemingly nowhere, Isaiah's going to speak of him again, by the way, uh, this wonderful time in chapter 11. We've already seen a small picture of him in chapter 2, this time that would be glorious unto the Lord. Uh, But as as the branch becomes visible to us, is revealed to us, we, we find this, this incredible backdrop to what God had always planned to do, which is to redeem. God has always been careful to provide a way that we can be right with him. And in his ideal vision here of Jerusalem, he, he gives us a picture uh, of the revelation of this branch. And as this message is delivered during some very dark and difficult, foreboding uh, times, turbulent times, uh, a time when it would be very likely that the people would be going, I don't see anything good coming out of this. There's this little glimmer of hope. There's this man that comes from Galilee, whose name is Jesus, that has this message. Look, I, I, I've come that you might have life. I've come to take away the sins of the world. I've come to make you right with God. If you believe in me, the the prophet Isaiah is looking forward. He's going, there's going to be one that's going to be able to save. Now, the tragedy from the Jewish perspective is this. All the religion, the temple couldn't save. Studying the Torah couldn't save. Fully keeping the law couldn't save. It was good and it was righteous, And God's moral character has never changed. And so those things still apply. But mankind could never meet that standard, never meet that criteria. And so God sees mankind's inability and he gives us a little glimmer. He says, one day there's going to be a branch of hope. There's going to be a branch that's going to spring up out of the rootstock of David. It's going to pop up, and in him, that holiness that you've been longing for, you're going to find it there. And so he begins to kind of reveal this to us in this particular chapter, these few verses, these six verses, in fact. So in this prophetic language of the day of the Lord, the tribulation, now comes the hope of that time. Because if there was no hope during the tribulation, I'm pretty sure most people would look at what was going on during that time and go, What's the point? We're not going to survive this. There's just no way. And, and as the Jewish people have to come to terms with, with what has happened in their history and then repent of it, there's also going to be this tremendous joy that salvation has come to the house of Israel. Who is this person? It's called the branch. The Jerusalem Targum, and and Targum is very much like we would call a commentary, but it's a rabbinic translation and an interpretation of a passage of scripture. So the Jerusalem version of this, which was written, um, the the oldest copy that we have is a little over a thousand years old, but it's a commentary on this passage and it uses this word samach, which literally means a shoot. We would call them a a sucker. If you have a tree and there's those, remember those real straight branches that come directly out of the the trunk? 
And it's like, they're, they're just, and they grow really, really fast. And it's like they were not there last week and all of a sudden there's this four foot thing sticking out. That's kind of the picture, it's a shoot. It pops up instantaneously. And the interesting thing about the life of this branch, this shoot, this sprout, if you will, it always implies that the root stalk is healthy. You won't get them unless the root stalk is healthy because they're actually tapped into the root. And so to put this into perspective, from a biblical perspective, when Jesus speaks about being grafted into his father, that he is a branch of the vine and then he himself is the vine because he's grafted into the rootstock of his father, he's given us the same exact picture. He's saying, my father sent me, I and my father are one, the rootstock is good, I'm the branch of the father and he who is in me is saved. The branch of the Lord is a picture of the Messiah. He's going to come out of the Jewish line. He's going to come from the lineage of David. That's our Christmas story, amen? So when Micah says he's going to come from, when Bethle, from Bethlehem of Judea, who is little among all of the nations, there, no one was going to look at it. Well, no, it was kind of a big deal, even though it was a little city, because it was also the hometown of David, amen? And so the Jewish line of David comes into, into play for us. And as we look at this passage, he's saying it's going to be to shoot, in essence, out of David's line. Scripture reminds us that that is exactly what we should be looking for. Because when we get to chapter 11, we're going to find out this same shoot is out of the stump of Jesse. Where does David come from? He's the runt of the litter from Jesse. And so all along the way, this, this prophetic journey that we have in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's reminding us, is, look, this is the branch. This is the person that we've been looking for. This is the one that the scriptures are, are reminding everyone he's coming. Sometimes when I read through these things, I, I realize that you know, I, I've studied them a little more than the average person, but uh, when Matthew begins to speak, chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, verse 27, Jesus speaking, he says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father, Father except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you, for I'm lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying, I'm of my father's rootstock. I, I and my father are one. We're, we're, the, we're the same family. We're the same tree. And so is Jeremiah writing of this time in Jeremiah 23 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up a branch from David of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. Never during the time of Jesus did that happen. So when Jesus is saying that's still going to happen, it still hasn't happened. So the only conclusion one can come to is it's going to happen in the future. And because the Jewish people weren't even in the land for 2,000 years, it's still future to us tonight from a Jewish perspective. 
Zechariah chapter three, verse eight says, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they they are wondrous and have a sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. So throughout all of the Old Testament, we get this picture that there's going to be a shoot that's gonna come out, is gonna, in essence, be the rootstock of God. It's gonna pop, in essence, out of nowhere. It's referred to as the root or the stump of Jesse, gonna come from David. So when we see Matthew and Luke preserve the lineage of Jesus all the way back through David, this is the basic reason. Now, of course, it travels all the way back to to Noah and travels all the way back to Adam on one side, but it travels all the way back to David on both sides so that we can know that Jesus popped up out of David's lineage. Why? Because the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah from from the line of David. And he would do all these amazing things. There was tremendous beauty that would come forth out of this branch. The, the, the very branch itself would be glorious, if you will, the divine glory of God. And, and that's why all of these things that are said about Jesus are so important to us. For unto us a, a child is born, and unto us a son, a, a son is given. Well, where did that son come from? He came from the rootstock of David. He, he came out of David's line. He came from David's city. The very thing that the prophet said would happen. And so when the writer of Hebrews talking about this life that we now live of faith, when he begins to speak about how God has spoken, there in Hebrews chapter one, he says, God who in various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. So in New Testament times, the writer of Hebrews says, the way God used to speak is through the prophets. But he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And those two didn't speak a different message. That's why Jesus himself called himself the son of man, which is a prophetic name from the book of Daniel. And so Jesus was saying, the prophets were telling you about me. The New Testament is telling us that the Old Testament told us about Jesus has in these last days spoken by his son, whom he has appointed heir to all things, through whom he has also made the world. So the writer of Hebrews attributes to the branch, to the Messiah, to the coming king, the the role of creator God. He said he created all things, made the worlds. And he also ascribed to him the glory of God, and so the, the beauty of the branch is that this branch, which comes from humble beginnings, is also going to have the divine glory of God. The brightness of his glory, the expressed image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. So there's not a different Jesus in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. Those two The prophetic view in the Old Testament is the view that we actually get in the New Testament. This is how we we look at these things. We go, man, God was speaking for a thousand years. This is is what Messiah would do. This is what Messiah would be. This is how he would act. This is where he'd be from. 
Uh, and so as the prophet Jeremiah would speak, he would say, behold, the days are coming when I'll raise up that righteous branch. And then he would later go on in chapter 33, in those days, and at that time I will cause the righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall ex- execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Without Christ, there is no righteousness on the earth. Amen? Individual people could do good things, but righteousness is an attribute of God. And the only way we can be righteous is by being in Christ. And so he's saying that this branch that's going to spring forth is going to bring forth righteousness. There's only one person that's ever claimed to do that, and that's Jesus. That's why salvation comes through him. That's why we get to chapter 53, and there's this incredible passage, chapter 52 and 53, part of it. Speaking of Messiah, it's the, it is the deepest messianic passage in all of Scripture. It's the, it's the most spot on, if you will. It's the Mount Everest of messianic prophecy. It says, he will be like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Where did Jesus come from? He came out of Galilee. So, so bad was that during those times that Nathaniel would say, can anything good come out of Galilee? out of Nazareth. Jeremiah would go on to say, in his days, speaking of that same branch, Israel will dwell securely and in his name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh Sitkanu. Our God is righteousness. Jesus is the only one to ever bring that to a place to where we could acquire it. Zechariah saw that day when God would take away the iniquity of his people, just as Isaiah sees it. They're writing at roughly the same time, and Jeremiah's going, one day God's going to take away our iniquity. Well, he didn't do it by the temple, because the temple's gone. There's been millions of Jewish people since since the temple was destroyed. So God still has to do that work of cleansing, the work that he began at the cross, the work that he began through the branch, the semach, so in Hebrews chapter 9, when, when the writer of Hebrews says there's only one mediator of the new covenant, he's speaking of the one branch, the one Savior, the one Holy One of Israel, the one that Zechariah and Isaiah, David himself would write about. He was given a picture. He says, look, this is how I'm going to do this. Zechariah 3, verses 8 and 9 says this. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, there are men who are assembled. For behold, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. And for behold, the stone that I have set before you, Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. And behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day guess when that day is going to be when Jesus comes again because when he came the first time they didn't see him they didn't believe in him and if there's only one way to be saved Jesus said I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by me there isn't another way there wasn't a Jewish way there was always the way of faith and those that believe like Abraham believed in faith of the coming Messiah. 
David waited for Messiah. Zechariah, Isaiah, when you get to heaven, you imagine talking to the prophet Ezekiel after you get to heaven when the battle of Gog and Magog has already taken place and you're sitting there going, wow, what was it like to know that ahead of time? So God's had this plan all along. He's, he's never been without a plan. And so our passage reminds us that in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Well, he's not beautiful and glorious today in Israel. Matter of fact, when you speak Jesus' name, generally, it is an offense to the Jewish people. You, you kind of watch them go, mm, you're not one of those, are you? Now, they normally don't disrespect us for speaking about Jesus because they appreciate the fact that we are supporters of Israel. But when you talk about Jesus being the Messiah, he is not beautiful and glorious to all Israel right now. But one day he will be. The fruit of the earth will be the pride, the adornment of the survivors of Israel. That's how the New Living Translation uh, puts this passage. He's completely able to cleanse. How are we completely cleansed? By the works of the flesh, no one is cleansed, amen? How are we cleansed? By the grace of God, amen? So the only one that's ever gonna be cleansed, ever gonna be right, ever gonna be righteous before the Lord is if you are in Christ. So this is speaking of a national time when all Israel is under the covering of righteousness because they're under Messiah. They're saved. That is still a time that's yet future. Because there's only one Lamb of God that can take away the sin of the world, amen? Guess who he is? He's the branch of David. He's Messiah. He's the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people, whom they're still looking for, by the way. That is the way they're gonna become a holy nation. One of the strangest things and again, this is a radical contrast because I think most people think about Israel and they think of this very religious place. Most Jewish people are not religious. They may attend synagogue, but they're largely secular. So when you talk to people about Judaism, I have friends who are Jewish. When I talk to them, they say, I know more about Judaism than they do when they're Jewish. And that's not to brag on my knowledge about Judaism, that's simply to say there is a lack of knowledge even about Judaism amongst the Jewish people to this day. And so there's going to come a time when not only is the king going to reign in Jerusalem, but they're gonna worship him. When you drive around Jerusalem, it's actually kind of hard to even find synagogues. They're there, but they're generally tucked away in back alleys and corners of, because property is very expensive partially, but they're, they're not, it's not like there's just you know, all kinds of synagogues everywhere in Jerusalem. But one day they're gonna worship the one true king. This holy remnant is, is now the fruit of the branch. It includes everyone recorded for life in Jerusalem. That's a very specific statement that Isaiah makes there in verse three, saying, look, in essence, Zion is going to be a righteous place filled with people who are righteous. 
That's a, that's a day that's ahead of us, family. It kind of pictures those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, by the way. And so that fruitful branch is finally going to not only cleanse, but to take away the sin, to make them prosper. And not just prosper monetarily. The Jewish people are prospering monetarily, if you want to look at it that way. Their economy is the ninth strongest. Their military is the tenth strongest in the entire world. So they're fine as far as that's concerned. But they're very secular and extremely divided. To some degree, they're actually a, a military state. Everyone's in, the, everyone's in the military. You go into the Israeli Defense Forces when you're 18 years old. You serve active duty for two to two and a half years. You get out and you are in the military until you're 35 years old. Anything happens, you're in the army now. It's like head out to your rallying point. You're on the front lines. But there's going to come a point in time when he's going to guide and direct literally uh, the, the Jewish people. And the final two verses here, verses 5 and 6, you can see this. And the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, over her assemblies, a cloud by day, and even smoke, the brightness of flaming fire by night, for over all of it will be the glory of his canopy, is the way the New Living Translation puts it. It's a fresh, fresh manifestation of God's presence is going to finally come upon Israel. As you, as you think on this for a moment, as you, as you ponder the plight of the Jewish people, it is staggering, it is mind-boggling when you think exactly how small that country is and yet how so much of the world's focus is on this little tiny country. We have way more people in the L.A. Basin than live in the entire country of Israel. That's not L.A. City, but the L.A. Basin, basically the, the Los Angeles metroplex, if you will. Almost double the population of the entirety of the nation of Israel. And yet the UN debates them daily. Our, our political process is focused on, you know, what's going on in Israel. Read the news today. There were three articles on the front page that had to do with Israel today. Today. Peace treaties, lack thereof, the attacks that went on in our embassy in Baghdad. Israel joins in in condemning Iraq and Iran and allowing that to happen. And guess what everybody else in the world does? They jump on Israel for having an opinion about it. But God's protecting them. Our next door neighbors that have radiant services, both, uh, both David and Charles, are Jewish. And I was talking to them today. And I looked at them. I said, so from, from your perspective, how do you view Israel, your country? And they almost simultaneously looked at me. We consider it a miracle. I said, I do too. It's a miracle. There's no reason for Israel to exist in the world. You would think that by now they would have been exactly what Iran's promised to do since 1973, which to wipe them off the face of the earth, push them into the Mediterranean Sea. These things keep getting said, and yet nobody can accomplish that task. 
And in fact, the whole time, what's Israel done? It's gotten stronger and stronger and stronger and more powerful militarily. They have developed technology that we now use in our military. Why? Because God is already setting up this shield of protection whereby he is going to keep them until they see Messiah. Until they see the one that they've pierced, exactly as Zechariah said. One day that's going to happen, and it's coming sooner rather than later, I, I believe, personally. Because I don't see how the world continues down the path that we're currently on without coming to the flashpoint. I don't see how we don't come to the flashpoint in a fairly short period of time. And I'm not predicting the rapture of the church next week. For those of you that think I might have just done that. But he's going to guide. He's going to protect. He continues to have his hand on it. Why? Because he promised them to. God doesn't break promises. So when someone says, well, you know, God's taking his hand off the Jewish people, that's insane. That is absolutely nonsense. Because if that were true, they'd be gone. They wouldn't exist. There's, there's no way that the Jewish people could exist in our world today given the, the, the hatred towards them. Like how many times do we have to see you know, an attack on a synagogue or a rabbi's home to realize that anti-Semitism still exists in this world? It, it is another form of racism. Except this is against Jewish people. Finally, all Israel, it says, is going to dwell with a branch. Look at verse 6. And there will be a tabernacle for shade from the daytime heat and a place for refuge for a shelter from the storm or the rain. One of the interesting festivals, feast days in Israel, is Sukkot, the feast of booths or tabernacles where the children of Israel, to honor the fact that God delivered them and had been their protector, that's the basis of the feast, that when they were delivered out of the hand of Pharaoh, they dwelled in these little houses made out of sticks. And so to commemorate God's protection over them, they still to this day move outside of their home. Some of them will go out on the roof. They'll go out on their porches. They'll go out and go camping. Um, Some of them actually just check into a really nice hotel. Um, But they will move out of their current home and into a home that represents the protection of the Lord. They're actually still looking for God to protect them. And they announce it every year. This feast of, of trumpets, of tabernacles. He's saying, Look, the Lord has protected us. He is our shield. On well, one day, they're not going to need a military because the Lord himself is going to come back and fully deliver them from the hand of their oppressor. He will be that shelter from storm, from rain. Right now, it's... Iron Dome missile systems and Patriot missile batteries and F-18s and all kinds of military hardware that largely keeps them safe. But it's interesting to me that Jesus used the same exact word tabernacle for his own body. 
that we are to tabernacle with him. And I believe it's alluded to here that that's exactly what he's trying to say. He's saying, look, that, that, that sukkah, that booth, that, that tabernacle over Zion, this, this picture of the Feast of Tabernacles, finally Israel's going to have an internal Feast of Tabernacles. It's going to be that they come into that right relationship that provides that covering for them every moment of every day. And that happens to us as we abide in him, as we make our home with Christ, as we uh, put our cares upon him and as he cares for us. It, It is when we do that that we have his glory shining in our lives. When we do that, that's when we have his peace. When we do that, that's when we have his protection. And so I, Isaiah is simply looking across the millennia and he sees this branch that's going to spring up out of the rootstock of David. And he says that branch is going to be our protection. That branch is going to be our salvation. That branch is going to be our righteousness. That branch is going to be our covering. That branch is going to be the one true king over all Israel forever and ever and ever. That branch will be our dwelling place. It is he that we are looking for. And that's the reason the rabbis from ancient times looked at this passage and said, we're looking for the branch. And so when you read the New Testament, that he is of the rootstock of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that his name is righteousness, that in him is, is, he is our peace, he is our shelter, he's our Sukkoth. One day, the Jewish people are going to see their king, and they're going to worship him, because the Bible says so. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together? Father, we thank you for the promises that you've made, Lord, in this tumultuous world when we look at this tiny little nation. Lord, a nation that we as believers love, hold dear, because our Savior was born in a little town in Bethlehem who was raised in a little tiny community called Nazareth. He spent his whole life wandering in the region of Galilee and in the Judean hills. And so, Lord, we are grateful for our heritage that we have in the Jewish people, Lord. And we pray that you would begin revealing yourself to them. Lord, we pray that the gospel would penetrate hearts and minds. And we, we know, we recognize, Lord, that your truth is growing in, in that land. Lord, there are messianic fellowships springing up and people are coming to faith. And so we pray that you'd protect them. We pray for Calvary Chapel Bible College there in Jerusalem. Lord, pray for those who are preaching the gospel even now, even at their own uh, potential of being kicked out of the country. Lord, we ask that you would give them favor. And we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Lord, as we're supposed to. We pray for blessing upon the land. We pray for the Palestinian people, the Arab peoples that surround them. Lord, we pray that your spirit would break forth in revival in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, or these countries that have so many that live in poverty and are oppressed. 
God, would your spirit be poured out on the land there. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the encouragement that you've always had a plan. Lord, for the living miracle that Israel is, we we bless you for being true and keeping your promises, Lord, keeping your people, preserving a remnant of them to this day. We believe that Isaiah's sons were named rightly. And one of them, a remnant shall remain, is true. There's a remnant in the land, and we pray that you would use us to reach, Lord, the lost. We pray for your day to come and for your church to be able to go home. So make us busy in this new year about your business. In Jesus' name, amen.